We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. Well, listen, this morning we're launching a new uh, sermon series called A Call to Die, and uh, if you got your Bibles, I'm encourage you to grab them. Go with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew 16. While you're turning there, I want to tell you, uh, there was a, a specific date, 1963, um, February the 17th, was a day that changed my life, all right? And uh, some of you are thinking, you were not even alive in 1963, and you would be correct on that. But there was still a day that changed my life. Uh, there was a man by the name of James who was married to a woman by the name of Dolores. And they had their third child, third of four. They had uh, two uh, boys, a girl, um, and, and then, no, I'm sorry, two boys, um, and then an, another boy, and then a, then a girl. And so they had kind of the, uh, the, the, the full house there. But it was this, it was this um, third child that was born to this family that changed my life uh, forever. His name is Michael Jordan. And uh, literally, this guy changed my, I mean, I'm telling you, my, my whole childhood was dominated by MJ. And I, I was an obsessed, obsessed young man with him. I, I can tell you all kinds of stuff about him. I can tell you his stats. I can tell you uh, different elements of his career, different significant moments that, that just stand out. I, I, as growing up as a kid, I would always say he's the greatest player of all times. And I would defend him to anyone who would question his greatness and even today, for those of who are in the room that might be the morons that would say, LeBron, I would say to you, you are delusional, all right? And uh, it, it is MJ all the way. And, and so I could tell you his greatest fear. Some of you may not know this about Michael Jordan, but the, he is deathly afraid of swimming. And the reason is, is even though he's one of the greatest athletes, and I would say the greatest athlete that's ever walked the planet, um, he, uh, he, he had a friend that drowned with him on the beaches in North Carolina, and, and it put a, a fear in his heart of swimming. Um, I can tell you that some of the greatest moments of adversity were getting cut from his high school basketball team. Imagine that coach making that decision. Uh, fueled him with a fire and a passion. He was going to uh, never miss out or lose again in that way. And so this just is a lot of things I can tell you. I've got a lot of stuff from him. I was a collector. All right, so I brought some things up here just so you'll know. Every now and then I will wear this uh, around the house, not into town, all right? And so I've got, I've got a jersey here. Um, I was a big collector of, of cards, baseball cards, and different things with Jordan. I brought this uh, with me. I laughed last night. I was going through some of this. I've got all kinds of, of cards in here uh, of, of MJ, but my favorite thing that I found that I didn't know I had, and it's amazing, uh, was this newspaper clipping whenever uh, they, uh, they were um, playing the Trailblazers uh, back in 1992 for their second NBA uh, title. And then here was my favorite. It was a McDonald's fry container. Um, and the thing is, is that there was still a fry in it and it was still good. Um, and uh, so this is unbelievable. This, this is now one of my favorite parts of my, 
my collection uh, here. I've got a couple of other things here. This is one of my favorite things that I have here. This was a Wheaties box. It's kind of uh, damaged here, but the reason I, I kept this is that because this is the cutout where I joined the Air Jordan uh, Flight Club <laughs> as a kid. And so this, as, a, as a, like a 12-year-old, I think I cut this out and uh, still have this. This here is one of my, my prize possessions right here. Uh, one of my favorite things ever um, is this right here. This is um, the collector's edition, never been opened. Wheaties are still in here. And uh, my wife got it out last night like this, and she was like, like it's, not, it's, it's great. It's, I don't know. We can eat this stuff, and it never goes away, all right? Um, so this is, all right, so here's this. this. For some of you, you will have no clue what this is. This is what we call a VHS tape. Um, some of you have no idea what this is, but this was the DVD of my era. And, uh, and, and uh, so this right here is Michael Jordan uh, recorded on our Cineo Hall show back in 1992. Um, I can still remember the rayon shirt that he had and that I wanted so bad. This here is uh, Dream Team uh, versus uh, Russia uh, for the World Championship. And I've got a couple of other games on here. Uh, oh, yeah, there's a 40th anniversary of Sports Illustrated, which they had a big segment on, Michael Jordan. It was hosted by Bob Costas, in case you wanted to know who the host of that event was. Uh, here was my favorite as a kid growing up. This was my Michael Jordan watch. And uh, I got this when I was about 11 years old. And uh, last night I checked to see if it was still working because I was going to wear it today, but it's not working. I'm trying to think of anything else. Oh, yeah, uh, this here. I got a couple of books in here. I'm not going to go into it, but this is one of my favorite. This was uh, when they were doing the uh, Dream Team. McDonald's would uh, let you have different cups, different players. I've got almost the entire Dream Team cup collection at my house. But you, you know this is the most important cup that I own in my home, all right? So my wife has a place for different crystal pieces, and this is, I have a place for these type of things, all right? So here, here, is, here is my point, uh, a little obsessed maybe um, as a kid growing up. Listen, I loved MJ, and I would defend him. I remember, listen, I remember weeping when he won his first uh, world championship. I was like, we finally did it. Like we, meaning he, finally did it. And he's, he's sitting there. If you don't know the, the video or the pictures, he's holding the trophy and his father is standing over him weeping. And I'm weeping in my living room as like a, I think a 13-year-old. And I remember, I remember this. I remember crying the day he retired the first of 14 times. <laughs> I remember the day that his career was resurrected, like Jesus coming out of the grave. And uh, he's back, and I remember all of that. And, and here's why I go through, through all of this. I can tell you stats. I can tell you about the emotions that I had for him, like the collection I could go through. This is only a portion of what I have in regards to uh, Michael Jordan and my collection. There, there are stories that I could tell of different moments and different games and different things that I've watched him do that moved me, that, that overwhelmed me. But here is the reality. If Michael Jordan walked in the room today, he'd be a little freaked out. He's like, who is this guy, and why does he have so much information about me? And here's the reality. He doesn't know me. I can tell you a lot about him. I can show you my collection. I can talk about the emotions. But the reality is I do not have a personal relationship with Michael Jordan. He would not recognize my voice if I called him and said, hey, Mike. He'd be like, hey, who? If, if he, he was to come here and I was to come and say, what's up, Mike? He's not going to say, hey, Todd. He, he has no idea who I am. We have no relationship. So I have a lot of information, affection, collection, emotion involved and invested into Michael Jordan. But he has no fat clue who I am. 
And here is my fear. My fear is that there are many who gather in worship services just like this all over the state of Texas, have a relationship with Jesus just like I have with Michael Jordan. That you have the collection, you got the Bibles and you got the books and you've got all the stuff that would say, hey, I'm a Christian. You have even knowledge and you've studied the Bible and you've got information. Some of you, there are moments when you think about things of, of, of religion and spirituality that moves you to tears. You would even say, for many of you, I've got a strong affection for Jesus and there are a lot of parts of Jesus that you've incorporated into your life. But the reality is for some of you in this room, if Jesus was to step in this room, you may recognize who he is, but he would not know who you are. Because you have no relationship with him. And here is the fear that I have, that we, we have come to a place in, in American evangelicalism and Christianity in our culture where we, we, we have men and women who think that they have a relationship with Jesus, but they've never entered into a saving knowledge of him. We live in a culture that says you can be saved without actually following Jesus. You can be forgiven of your sin without repentance. We live in a Christian culture today that says that you can be certain that you're going to heaven even though while you're on earth, you live for the here and now. And this is the reason we're going to do this series that we're in, A Call to Die. I want us to recapture what Jesus meant when he says, come follow me. What it truly means to be a disciple, what it truly means to follow him. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, one of the, the most scary verses, the most fearful verses in all of Scripture is this. It's Jesus' words, and this is what he says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who, who says they have affection for Jesus or says they have a devotion to Jesus, who says that they know Jesus will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the one who really follows me. He says on that day, on the day when, when, when we will be uh, placed before him, when he will judge the living and the dead, it says on that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons and do many mighty works in it? In other words, Lord, Lord, I got the collection. I got, the, I got the jersey and, and, and I, got the, I got the Bible and I got the books. I got all the things that I thought I needed. Look, look at all the things that I've done through the years. Look at the emotions that I've had for you. Look at the things that I've done to, to, to speak on your behalf. And he's going to say to them on that day, and he will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In this series, I want to recapture the essence of being a follower of Jesus. To recapture what it meant when Jesus said, hey, come follow me, what did he mean? Did he mean, mean simply pray a prayer and then go live life like you want? Did he mean, hey, come to church occasionally? Did, did he mean, hey, read the Bible and be able to defend some doctrine and know a lot about him? What did he mean when he says, come follow me? And we're going to discover is, is that it was an invitation into a relationship where, check this out, you actually follow Jesus. I want us to capture this. It was a call to die and enter into a relationship with him. And my, my prayer is this, is that there are some of you in the room uh, this morning, and uh, th this is kind of what's going to happen in your heart. There's going to be a moment, potentially through the series, maybe even today, where, where the Holy Spirit is going to awaken your heart to the reality that you have a Michael Jordan-type relationship with Jesus. And, and you're going to need to repent and be saved and enter into a true relationship of following him. Others of you, 
You, you are saved and you have a relationship with Jesus and you're going to recognize there's some areas of your life where you've not been pursuing and following Jesus and you're going to be reminded of the call that you surrendered to and the desire to, to, to leave everything to follow Jesus and the Lord is going to do, do some things in your life and free you from some things that you've been pursuing other than him and there's you know, going to come out of this series with a passion for Jesus and a boldness for his name and a commitment to uh, his mission and, and, and God is going to set your heart ablaze for his mission and for his kingdom. There are others of you who will not be here at the end of this series because you say, I'm not going to sign up for that. And there's going to be maybe some weeding out of those of you who are caught up in the, the consumerism of Jesus, but you're not really interested in being a follower of Jesus. And I would just plead with you, hey, listen, hang in there. Let's, let's walk through the series uh, together and let's just see what Jesus might say to all of us. Amen? Amen. So in Matthew chapter 16, where we're going to be today, we're going to see the, the cost of being a disciple. How many of you, when you shop, when you find something you like, what, what do you typically do? You look at the what? You look at the price tag. You're going to see, i got to make sure that i got the money for this and it fits the budget. For some of you, you don't, and you get up there and you're shocked, right? And, uh, but you buy it anywhere because you're not even looking at a budget. But listen, most of us who are responsible, we're going to look at the cost. We're going to see that it fits the budget. We're going to make sure the price tag is right. And so this morning, I want us to see the cost of discipleship. So Matthew chapter 16 is where we are. This is a significant moment. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and Peter, uh, the impetuous disciple, the one who's always the outspoken one, Jesus asks a question. He says, hey, who do the people say that I am, and uh, what is the word on the street about who people think I am? And so the disciples begin to answer this question, and then Jesus looks at the disciples and says, what about you? Who do you believe that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter nailed it. I mean, he, he hit it out of the park. He, he says, you are the Christ. You're the Son of God. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are God in flesh. You're the Redeemer we've been waiting for. You are the long-awaited King, the Lord, the King of the universe, who's come to usher in the kingdom of God. Peter nails it. And then we're going to see that he screws it up. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, notice what happens next. From that time, in other words, now that they recognize who he is, from that moment, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he, listen to this, must go, if you want to circle that, you should, to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day he would be raised. So Jesus is making it very clear uh, there is a mission, there is a specific mission that he came for, and that mission included him going to Jerusalem where he would be rejected, he would suffer, and he would be put to death, but then he would resurrect. The, the, the word there, or the phrase, must go, is a, a Greek word that, that kind of gives the idea of divine necessity. So Jesus is not saying, hey, I need to go there because there's a couple of things that I probably need to get to. No, no, no. It, this is, is implying that there's a specific reason that I have been sent to earth and there is a specific mission that I have. It is a necessity that I go to Jerusalem and there's a necessity that I suffer. It's a necessity that I die. It's a necessity that I am resurrected. This is what Jesus is saying. There is a divinely appointed thing that I must go do that I, I've got to do because I am compelled by God. God the Father to go and do that. You see the weight of this. So Jesus is explaining to them for the first time what he came to do. Listen, what Jesus wants us to understand is that there is no, listen, there is no forgiveness of sin apart from the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
The hope of humanity is dependent upon the fact that the God of the universe sent his son in flesh to live a life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve to die, to be put in another man's tomb because he wasn't going to need it very long, and to be resurrected back to life so that through his death, burial, and resurrection, our sins might be forgiven, we might be made alive, and we could be reconciled back to God. This was a divine necessity. But Peter misses this. What's what happens next? Look at Peter's response to this. And Peter took him aside. I love this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it uh, from you, Lord. This shall never happen. So let me just give you a word of just a, just a nugget of truth of wisdom. It's never great to re- rebuke Jesus. It's never a good idea. Like, you, he said, and I love the way Peter does this. He's like, Jesus, come here a second. Come here a second. Like, like I, 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 let me give you some information. I know the whole Messiah, king of the universe. You know everything. Like, come here. The walking on water, the raising the that guy from the dead was amazing. But come here a second, Jesus. I need to bring some correction to you. Like, how dumb must you be, right? It gives Jesus this rebuke. He's like, no, no, no. You, th- this can't happen. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never ever happen. This is a strong rebuke. So Peter goes from hero to zero in about six seconds, right? I love what Jesus says next. Listen to this. And Jesus' response was, um, uh, no, 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 verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me. So when Peter nailed it, when he says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, he says, yes, and you are Peter, you are the Petrus, you are the rock. And it's through this proclamation. So he calls Peter the rock, and then now he calls him the word. And he says stumbling block or, or hindrance. It's the word that means stumbling block. So you've gone from rock of the foundation to now the thing that's going to trip the gospel up. Imagine that being the day. Like he comes home, tells his wife. His wife's like, oh, what was your day like? And he's like, ah, it started out well. <laughs> like, like I nailed it. Jesus asked me a question. I got it right. He says I'm going to be the major figure that helps the church explode. Like, well, what happened from there? She's like, all downhill. I called me Satan and then told me I was the biggest loser in the group. <laughs> this is a bad day. And listen why. This is what Jesus is saying to Peter. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. This is the root issue for Peter. Peter was seeing Jesus and his mission from an earthly perspective. And while Peter was confident in who Jesus was, he knew you are the Messiah. That that did not waver, that had not changed. He was confident you are the Christ from God, the Redeemer of the world. There was no doubt in Peter's mind of who Jesus was, but there was a lot of things that that Peter thought about Jesus and what he came to do that Jesus has just rearranged, and now it has turned Peter's world upside down. Peter was looking at Jesus and his mission from a, a, an earthly point of view. Like other Jewish people of the day, uh, Peter's ex- expectation, his expectation of the Messiah was that the Messiah was going to come and be the warrior king who would storm Jerusalem, kick Rome out of power, set up an earthly kingdom where the Jewish people would rule and reign over the earth, that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in in this moment. And then he would set up his throne and that, that and Peter and, and the disciples, they thought, you know, we are, in, we are the closest companions to Jesus. We're going to be like the cabinet who rule and reign with him. Peter was only thinking of an earthly kingdom. 
He was seeing Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, and rather than seeing Jesus for who he is and what he came to do, he saw Jesus for who he was and what Peter wanted him to do. Peter's issue is, is that he never imagined there being suffering and persecution. He never imagined there being a, a cross. He never imagined there being a tomb. Peter only thought about thrones and crowns and kingdoms and power. He never thought about suffering and pain and sorrow and loss. And Peter is anticipating something and Jesus is saying, I've not come to do that. Jesus came to carry a cross, not a crown. He came to suffer, not to conquer. He did not come to defeat the enemy. He came to be defeated by an enemy so that he could ultimately defeat the greatest enemy. But Peter didn't want the cross. He wanted the crown. He didn't want to suffer. He wanted to conquer. He didn't want uh, persecution. Peter wanted prominence. And because of this, he was seeing the Messiah through his own lens and his own agenda. And listen to me, I believe that is the same issue that we have in this room. You see, the root issue in many of our hearts is not in regards to who Jesus is. We would say, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Redeemer. He did die for our sins. He did resurrect uh, to, to, uh, to life. He is the, the one that God has sent. The issue that many of us have with Jesus is not who he is, but rather what he wants to do in and through our life. What we want is a Messiah that we can instruct into what we want him to do rather than one that we die to self in order to live for him. Far too often we see Jesus as the means to our own desired end, but when following Jesus moves us into his will, and when his will is different than our will, many of us say, you know what, I think I'm going to do my thing and not Jesus' thing. It's the same root issue. When Jesus begins to flex his authority and his lordship and begin to call us to things that we never really wanted to do and he begins to call us out of comfort, out of convenience, when it's not easy to follow him, we begin to say just like Peter, no, 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 far be it from me, Lord. This shall never be. You, you mean to tell me you want me to break up with that girl or that guy? You don't want me to date them? You're telling me that I need to end that relationship? You're telling me that I need to stay in this job that I don't really like because you've got a mission for me here? You mean to tell me that these habits and behaviors that are part of my life that I feel like is a part of my identity, that you want me to walk away from those things, and I, but I feel like it's a part of who I am? How dare you ask me to walk away from that? You mean you want me to give you more than an occasional Sunday? You, you mean you want to be the Lord of my finances and instruct me on how I invest my money and spend my time? You want control of what? Far be it from me, Lord. This shall never be. It's typically our response. Because we have a Jesus that we want to conform into our agenda rather than being disciples and followers of Jesus who say, you know what, you are Lord, you are Master. It is your will, not my will. And this is where many of us stumble and fall. See, here is the root issue. Listen to this. We want a Jesus to live inside of our hearts, but we don't want him to take over our heart. We want a Jesus who will forgive our sins but does not call us to walk away from our sinful life. 
We want a Jesus that will sacrifice and suffer for us as long as he doesn't demand that we sacrifice and suffer for him. Many of us want a Jesus that we can call Lord without him really demanding that we live underneath his lordship. I did a wedding this weekend. And I love weddings. I, loved, I, loved, I used to hate doing weddings. Now I love doing weddings. It's just it's a gospel moment. And, uh, and so I went in this wedding. It's, it's the same thing every time. You know, this couple is here at the front of the room, and they're vowing to one another that they're going to abandon all others. And then you go through the whole list, right, in sickness and in health and in poverty or, or wealth and in good times and difficult times. And then the big words at the end are what? Till till death do us part. In other words, I'm in for the long game. And so he is standing there and he is saying to his fiance, soon to be bride, every other woman that wants my affection, every other thing that would get my attention, everything that I want to live for as an independent single man, I'm abandoning that. And then she's saying, every other man that wants my affection and, 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 and wants a relationship with me or, or everything that I've lived as the centerpiece of my life, I'm, I'm abandoning all of that and I'm going to be fully devoted to you. And we expect that in a wedding, right? Like, we don't expect him to say, look, here's the thing, right? Like, I, I, there's only one girl over here, and it's gonna, I'm going to occasionally see her, and uh, I've got the finances. You know, here's the thing. I think we should kind of split this thing 50-50, and you, you should just kind of take care of your stuff. I take care of my stuff. And as far as better or worse, I'm in as long as it's always better and never worse, Right? Like no one in that moment, is, is their heart is not warmed at all in the room if that's the dialogue. Because we expect this. Of course, you're getting married. Why is it then the Scripture describes the relationship we enter into with Jesus as a, we are the bride of Christ, entering into a covenant relationship with him. And so many of us, we stand there and we're like, I just want to pray the prayer and have all the blessings of the relationship, but I do not want to abandon anything else in my life. I'm not interested in being fully devoted to you. I just want what you have to give. And we believe that's called salvation and discipleship, but listen to me, it's not that. Jesus is going to make it explicitly clear here, very clear here, of what it means to truly follow him. I want you to look what he says in verse 24. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, listen to this, Jesus told his disciples. So there's this moment where Peter swings and misses, rebukes Jesus, and Jesus sees. He said, they don't get it. They don't see the bigger picture. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if anyone would come after me. Now pause there for a minute. We gotta get this. This is a reference to being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. He says, if anyone, I love this because the invitation for, for you in the room, listen to this. Jesus says to you, if anyone, anyone in this room, doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what the sin tendencies in your life is, how religious you have been, how irreligious you have been, the mistakes you've made, if anyone would come after me, anyone. But he uses this phrase, phrase come after me. The idea is, he, he's, it's an invitation to salvation, but he uses this phrase to come after me because the implication is this. Whoever wants to be my follower, be my disciple, enter into a relationship with me. To come to him literally means to pursue him, to actually follow him as your master. 
We have made a distinction. Listen to me, church. We have made a distinction. And this is a a huge fallacy in the gospel in our culture. We have made a distinction between being saved and being a disciple. The invitation to salvation, listen to me, eyes right here, is an invitation to be a disciple. We have made a distinction between being saved being forgiven of your sin in a relationship with God and actually being a disciple who follows Jesus. But listen, Jesus doesn't give two separate invitations. He just says, hey, come, come after me. Come follow me. The, the implication is, is that to come to me, is that's where you find salvation. He makes no distinction. To receive Jesus' grace and salvation is to submit to him as Lord, which means we come after him. But notice, notice what Jesus says. If you want to do this, Here's what this means. If anyone would come after me, listen to this, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus gives three little little commands here, three commands with massive implications. These are life-transforming implications in these little three phrases that he gives here. And they're not independent. In other words, you don't do like, I'm going to do the first but not the second two. Or I'm going to do the first two and not the third. It's just kind of all-encompassing together. This is what it means to come after Jesus. And by the way, as we walk through this, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, that we're not talking about, like, like I think sometimes in the church world, we think there are like uh, freshman followers of Jesus, and then there's JV followers of Jesus, and then there's varsity followers, followers of Jesus, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's like there, there's your freshman, you're just the ones, you prayed the prayer and you just occasionally go to church, and you're like, I'm good, man. I'm not like those other people. Then you get to JV. Those are the ones, I mean, church is a little more of a rhythm, and you're like, okay, I'm in this thing. I'm going to be here. I don't know if I'm going to serve or get involved or really follow Jesus in every area of my life. And then we look up to those maybe who are what we would call mature followers of Jesus, and we're like, okay, those are the special forces. That's the varsity followers of Jesus. That's who Jesus is talking to here. No, 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 no. Jesus said, if anyone is going to be a follower of mine, if anyone is going to come after me, There's not tears of this now. Do we grow in maturity? Do we grow into these things? Absolutely. But it's the pursuit. If anyone's going to do this, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and let him follow me. Let me talk about these three. The first is deny yourself. This is not merely saying to deny certain things that you may enjoy or or that you may struggle with, but rather it's to deny our personhood. To deny our dreams and agendas and plans and everything that belongs to me. So when he says deny yourself, he's not saying just limit some things in your life that you know I don't approve of. He's not talking about making the list of all of the habits that you have and go, okay, got to work on this, got to work on this, got to work. He's not talking about just self-discipline, although that's probably a, a part of it, but that's not his intent here. I want you to listen to what theologian and author John Stott says about this. He says, to deny yourself is to behave towards ourself as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. The verb is the same. When Peter denies Jesus, this is the same thing when Jesus says you've got to deny yourself. He disowned him. He repudiated him. He turned his back on self. Self-denial is not denying to ourselves, luxuries such as chocolates, cakes, cigarettes, or cocktails, although it might include this, it is actually denying or disowning ourself, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. To deny oneself is to turn from the idolatry of self-centeredness. 
It is literally, it demands that we renounce, listen to this, our own autonomy. I'm the boss of my life. I'm the one who chooses the areas that I follow Jesus in and the areas that I don't follow Jesus in. It is this, this, this re, 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 renouncing of autonomy. I'm no longer going to be the master of my own life. There's no longer going to be this self-love that gives complete autonomy to me. Rather, I'm going to submit myself, denying my own personhood and find my new identity and in him and him alone. To deny yourself. Listen to this. Just put it like this. It's to be done with you. With your agenda, your hopes, your dreams. My, my, my son, my, my, young, my, my son was, when he was born, he was born with a little health condition and um, scared us the first couple of days, had a, had a bleed in his stomach and we went in and got it checked out. Ended up he had this uh, protein issue that he couldn't uh, eat certain foods or certain formulas and, um, and because he was being nursed um, in these days, uh, there was a, a limit to what my wife could eat because everything that she ate, he would eat. And for a year, my wife, uh, just amazing, amazing, just act of love toward my son, denied herself everything she ever enjoyed, um, resisting any kind of dessert, any kind of dairy. Like she read every label, made sure it, it fit within the diet that Noah had to eat. In, in essence, it wasn't just that, that my wife that first year of Noah's life was denying herself little things that she enjoyed. Here's what really she was doing as a mother. She she lost herself and will and desire and completely submitted to the needs of her son. She denied herself, her personhood, her rights. As a mom, she had the right to eat whatever she wanted to, but because she denied those things, she gave herself fully to the, the needs of and the agenda of and the care of my son. This is what it looks like to deny yourself. It is to say it's no longer about me and it's all about you. And this is where most people pump the brakes. They're like, Jesus, I'll give you some of me, but not all of me. I want to maintain control of certain relationships, certain dreams, certain ambitions, certain parts of my life. I'll give you some Sundays here or there. I'll give you a little bit of time, a little bit of money here and there. I'll try to stop some old habits. I'll try to start some new habits. But, it, but, it, but as far as laying my life down on the altar and saying, I'm done with me, and I want you to have full control, I'm not there yet. I don't know that I'm going to sign up for that. So many of us have a, I love this, have a Luby's relationship with Jesus. Some of you are like, you speak in my love language. Others of you are like, I got four or five more years before I start dining there. Um, <laughs> supper at four, right? Um, so Luby, well, Luby's, what do you love about Luby's or any kind of a buffet? Very little. Um, uh, you love because you get to pick and choose what you eat. Like, I, I want to be in control of what's on my plate and the portions that are on my plate. And this is how many of us approach our relationship with Jesus. We, we want to have a Luby's approach where we pick and choose the things that we surrender and the things that we are willing to give him. But Jesus is saying, listen, this is not discipleship. Now, he gets it very explicit in the next phrase. He says, deny yourself. And then he says this, listen to this, take up your cross. Now, this was radical, a statement for Jesus. One, one of, listen, every single person listening to Jesus in this moment, when he says, hey, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself, they're probably going to be like, okay, this is not what I thought it would be, but okay. And then he says, take up your cross. This statement here would have caused every knee to buckle in the place. 
Because there was no way Jesus could have used imagery that would have been as shocking as saying to them they must take up their cross. See, the cross for us has become a decoration that we put in our homes, jewelry that we wear. But in this particular day, it was the most gruesome, violent image Jesus could have painted for his disciples of what discipleship looked like. The Roman government were masters. No government in history of the world was better at law and order than the Roman government. And this was a group of people that knew how to punish people. They knew how to put people to death. But the most strategic, painful declaration of, 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 of death that they could come up with is Roman crucifixion. Maybe in the history of the world, we've never seen anything quite as violent as Roman crucifixion. You see, for us, when we think of the cross, we think of something that, that moves us to tears but, but for the disciples, it would have moved them to great fear and trembling. It wasn't until the last Roman crucifixion was witnessed by human eyes before the church decided to use it as an ornament of a symbol of the, of the body of Christ. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, the disciples understood what he meant. He wasn't saying, hey, there's this great thing of faith that you're going to hold dearly. No, no, they understood he meant die. And the words he uses here is, is very strategic. He says, take up your cross. Why is this important? Whenever the Roman government wanted to make a declaration about a crime that's been committed and wanted the world to know how they deal with these type of things, they would not only crucify the person, they would make the person carry their own cross to the place of death. So if you saw a man or a woman walking, carrying a cross, here's what you would say. That's a dead man walking. Their life is over as they've ever known it. This person is as good as dead. They have no rights. They are now under the full submission of the Roman government and their life has ended. And this is the point Jesus is making. If you want to come after me, you want to be my follower, you've got to understand it's going to cost you everything. You need to die to yourself. Take up your cross you're a dead man. You're a dead woman walking. You have now been under the full uh, submission of my lordship over you. You are done with life as you knew it. It is dead. It is gone. Your life will never be the same again. This is the point Jesus is making. This is a far cry from I prayed the prayer. I go to church. You're a follower of Jesus? Oh, sure, I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, well, how do we know? Well, I mean, I, we pray as a family over meals. I went, I went to the church. What is the pastor's name over there? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I, I, that church I, I, go, I go to. You see, what we've done in our culture today is we've, we've stripped this out of the gospel and we can say that we're followers of Jesus, but never really deny self and never really die to self. There's no cross that we're carrying. And listen, when we talk about carrying your cross, he's not talking about you got sick last week. Oh, it's a cross that I bear. No, no, no. We're talking about a spiritual death that's occurred in your life because your life is now in Christ and Christ alone. That you're, you're going to follow Jesus and for these disciples to death. But at the very least, to life. But this is what Jesus is saying here. 
But see, here's, here's the problem with most of us. We've got a princess bride theology. You know what I'm talking about? Remember the moment whenever he was in there and they're like, he's not dead. He's mostly dead, right? For most of us, this is kind of our relationship. We're just mostly dead. I don't want to be fully crucified because then I have no will. Because here's the reality. A dead man has no authority or autonomy. He has no will. He has no power. Life is over for a dead man. And this is what Jesus is saying. He doesn't want us mostly dead. We take up the cross. And here's the implication. Listen to this. This is the implication of both of those. The third one is this. And follow me. And follow me. The word here, to follow, literally means to go after. Listen to this. To actively walk with someone who is leading the way. That's what it means to follow. To actively Follow someone who is leading the way. This is a present active imperative in the original language. Why is that important? He says, hey, if anyone is going to come after me, if anyone's going to be a disciple of mine, he's got to deny himself. Your personhood is lost and it's now found in Jesus. And then you've got to take up your cross, die to you. Life is over as you knew it. And then follow me and keep following me and keep following me. And after that, follow me. And all the days of your life, you follow me so that your life is one massive pursuit of Jesus, mimicking him, uh, behaving as he says to behave, listening to his word and walking in obedience to it, doing what he said and, 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 and going where he sends. Whatever he says, you follow, Right? This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's like the game Follow the Leader, right, as a kid. You remember that game? Like how dumb is the game if nobody follows the leader? You have just a random guy walking around with nobody following. like, what are you doing? We're playing Follow the Leader. Well, you stink at it. Listen, as a church, we, I think in our Christian culture, we stink at it. Because for so many people, if you look at their life, there is no pursuit of Jesus. There is no actually following Jesus. Like, check this out. When Jesus says, follow me, it wasn't metaphorically. He was saying, actually follow me. Like, like, like take my word and walk in it. Watch my life and mimic it. When, when I speak, you, you submit and you do and you go and you say, whatever it is, follow me. Not follow culture, not follow your heart. By the way, this philosophy that says just follow your own heart. No, no, no. The scripture says your heart is wicked and evil and deceptive and no one can trust the heart. But you know what you can trust? You can trust Jesus. Follow Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. Is that it, 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 the idea, uh, this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I'm done with me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Here's what Paul is saying at conversion. When I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, here's what happened. I died to self. I denied self. And now the life I live is no longer me. I'm following Jesus. It's his life in me. So to follow him means that you walk in his power, not your own. You walk in his will, not your own. You walk in his ways, not your own. Everything is about your Messiah and the lordship that he has in your life. And so many of us, if we examine our life in this room, that is not you. Jesus has pieces of you here and there. 
But if you look at the trajectory of your life, there is no passionate pursuit following him. And listen, I am not the, the one who has been sent to judge your salvation. What I would say to you is, is that the scripture says you need to examine your own heart to see if you are really in the faith. It's like this. I mean, football season is cranking up. And imagine a guy who all he does is lay in his recliner and watch football on television telling everybody he's a football player. Right? Right? Some of you are like, that's my husband. That is my husband. You're like, you're not a football player. At best, you're a fan. You, you, you watch football. You like football. You've got knowledge of football. But you don't put on pads and a helmet. And you don't get out there onto the field. And you would say, I don't care how much you're convinced and how passionate you are about watching football. You are not a football player. Some of you, you are spectators of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You're watchers of the game, but you're not in the game. You're not actually the people following Jesus. And there needs to be an examination of whether or not you really know him. Now, listen, Jesus is going to make something explicitly clear. I'm going to make sure we understand that there is a cost, but the cost is worth it. Are you with me? Say Amen. Once you look what he says, notice what Jesus says about the, the trade of, of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him and why this is something we should do. Look what he says next. He says for. Now, why does he say for? He's saying to us, here's why you should do this. There's, because of this, you should follow him. You should deny yourself and take up your cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return of his soul? For the Son of Man is coming, um, is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and he will repay each person according to what he's done. What does he mean? What he's done in regards to this decision we have to make. Whether we're going to follow him or we're not going to follow him. Jesus says you've got a choice. You can hang on to your life. And the word life here, by the way, in the Greek language is, is the word where we get the word psyche or uh, psychology or psychological. Why is this important? He's not talking about just life, like blood life. He's talking about personhood, the sense of finding one's identity, your soul, who, who you are. And Jesus is saying, listen, you can be a people who hold on to your identity that's found in the world on your terms. You can hold on to your own autonomy, your life as I am who I am, I'm going to be who I'm going to be, and this is my life, and I'm going to hang on to this, this personhood, this identity that I'm finding in my own lordship in my life and the things of this world. And for many of us, that identity includes religious behavior. And he says, you can hang on to this, but that what you're hanging on to is ultimately going to strip, be stripped from you. Or you can let it loose. You can turn away from your identity being found in, in you and what you accomplish in your own autonomy and your lordship in your own life and, and what you do and what people think of you and the things of this world. You can die to that, let that go, and what you're going to find is a life, a new identity, an identity, listen, that could never be taken from you, an identity that is, listen, that is real and lasting and eternal, an identity that's rooted in Jesus. This is the dilemma we're in. 
that Jesus is saying, listen, don't miss this. Jesus' call to die is actually an invitation to live. Jesus' call to die is actually an invitation to live. Remember the game you'd play when you were kids, if a kid moved out of a seat or if he left something behind, you would grab it. What would you say? Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That's not what the kingdom says. The kingdom says losers, finders, keepers, weepers. You lose your life to find life. You die and deny and follow and you turn away from life as you know it because that life, Christ is going to return and it's going to be stripped away from you. But if you'll willingly let go and deny, take up your cross and follow me, you'll find life that you never imagined and an identity that's rooted in something so much greater than things of this earth. Here is what C.S. Lewis says about it. Listen to this. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the, the death of, the, of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have, nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. Listen to this. And with him, everything else is thrown in. And in the words of the great missionary and martyr, Jim Elliot, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads if you would. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In your seat, I want you to take your hands, you know, right in your left hand. I just want you to hold them open in front of you. Not up, not high, just hold them in front of you. Everyone in the room, just do this. Hold them in front of you. And in your right hand, I want you to think about your life, your way, you as king, you as ruler, the things in your life that you want to control and be in charge of and have autonomy in. Things in your life that you're like, man, I don't want Jesus in that area. And don't just think things that are sinful. Think things that are practical. Family, finances, hobbies, career, For many of us, if we were to be honest, we would look in that right hand and we would recognize this is what we follow. Jesus might be in there, but these things are what we pursue. Then your left hand, I want you to think about what Jesus came to offer. Life and life abundantly. But there is suffering, there is denial, there is potentially persecution, there is the loss of you for the gain of him. 
And my question for you this morning is one, have you relinquished all that is in your left hand, a right hand, to gain all that is in your left hand? For some of you this morning, you have made that choice a long time ago, but man, there's some things in your life, you're kind of regaining control. You forgot what it meant to deny yourself, take up your cross and really follow him. And Jesus is just wanting to weed those out, prune those things from your life so that all you have in the end is him. He is in control. Others of you, what you're recognizing in this life is you've never let go of your right hand. You've never relinquished denying yourself, taking up your cross so you can follow him. And this morning, you need to make that decision to die in order to live. We're going to have the worship team sing a song in a moment. And this song is going to speak of some lyrics that I believe defines the series that we're in. And as you sit there, maybe you want to stand. Maybe you want to kneel. Maybe you want to come to this altar. Maybe you want to come and talk to someone about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But I want you to think about right hand, left hand. Where are you and what are you going to do in response to this as we begin this journey over the next seven weeks together. For some of you, you need to be saved today and it's time for you to relinquish all that is in your right hand to gain all that Jesus wants to put in your left hand. But let's let's respond. I'm not going to tell you to stand. I'm not going to tell you to sit. I'm not going to tell you to come. I'm going to tell you all of the above is, op- is, o- is open. And I want you to listen to the lyrics. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and follow Jesus with whatever he says. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.